morning, everybody. It's good to, good to see you all here with us today. See some new friends here. Welcome. Uh, if you are a visitor here today, let me just uh, kind of update you. Uh, we're in the middle of a series uh, I've titled Rescued to Rejoice. Um, it's, um, it's primarily our practice to preach through books of the Bible. And so we are looking uh, at an Old Testament book, the book of Exodus. Um, so second book of the Bible. If you, if you have a Bible with you, you're welcome to open that up to uh, the book of Exodus. If you don't have a Bible, we'll have the words projected for you. But uh, we'll be spending um, a number of weeks. Um, I've got it plotted out at least uh, up you know, through the spring uh, for the first half of Exodus. Exodus is a very long book. We'll pause and then we'll, we'll pick it back up later down the road, but, uh, but we're pretty predictable here. So uh, we, we really just work through chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and this morning we're picking up in chapter three of uh, the book of Exodus. So uh, we will uh, look at verses 10 through 15 this morning. Um, if you haven't been with us, um, whether you're a visitor or you've been out, let me just quickly um, catch you up to where we're at in the narrative because uh, we're, we're really jumping in in the middle of, a, of an encounter. Um, so uh, the Old Testament people of God, the Israelites, are enslaved in Egypt. Um, they have uh, been enslaved for many, many generations now. God has raised up a deliverer for them, Moses. So if you know little to nothing about the Bible, you'll, you'll probably at least semi-familiar with the, the man Moses. Moses is now um, out in um, the wilderness shepherding his father-in-law's um, flock. And uh, he's having this encounter uh, with the living God in a burning bush that refuses to be consumed. And so um, here we have now in the middle of chapter three, uh, a barefoot man um, quaking in his, in his feet, I guess, uh, literally the dust. Um, uh, he's, he's encountered a holy God and he's about to have a conversation with him. And so this morning, well, we're going to just pick up just the beginning portions. Uh, I just couldn't do justice by going any further. So we're going to just look at the opening uh, portion of this conversation with God, beginning in verse 10 of chapter 3, Exodus. This is the word of the Lord. This is God speaking. <clears throat> Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I? that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. And he said, but I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. And God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. This is the word of the Lord. Let's uh, ask him to bless the preaching of it. Father, we pray now that, um, that your scriptures would, would not just be um, something for us to believe in, uh, but rather they would be words for us to be changed by. Uh, Lord, 
unless your spirit moves, these are just words on a page. And so, Father, we pray that you would illumine these words to hearts today. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Uh, yesterday, I uh, had the opportunity to take our children to the Shrine Circus. Uh, in case you didn't know, that's in town. Um, our neighbor had dropped off a couple of tickets for the boys, and so we thought, hey, you know, let's, let's take advantage of this, go to the Shrine Circus. What, what, you know, begins as a $50 day of entertainment after you've hit the ATM a couple times in the concession stand, you're 120 deep, but, but you're having a good time. Um, we, 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 we had, I don't think I had ever been to a circus. Heather and I were kind of trying to reminisce about our childhood. It was all new to us, and so um, we're, we're, we're there. We don't really know what to expect, and um, kind of the acts, if you've been to a circus, there's like different, you know, stages kind of thing going on, and, and they begin, and uh, what happened at the beginning uh, of the performance, the entertainment, uh, Heather and I uh, were, were kind of stretched out down the aisle um, with the kids between us, right? And so at the very beginning, um, Heather and I are kind of like down the aisle giving each other eyes, and we're, we're, we're watching this entertainment from the perspective of, you know, adults. And so I'm seeing um, some, some cheesiness on a few things, right? I'm kind of singing like, okay, I see what you did there. That wasn't that tricky. Um, you know, but, but, but on the other hand, I begin seeing some of these, I mean, really death-defying acts, like, you know, some of these um, dangling, d- dazzling, kind of hanging in the air, no net under them. They're not harnessed in. Like, we begin to see some things, and Heather and I, our, our, our looks begin to change. We're like, wow, did you see that one? And, um, and then something happened uh, when the motorcycles came out. Um, if you've never seen the, the big metal cage where the motorcycles kind of fly around in them, um, I knew the boys were going to really be amazed by this one. And so during that, um, I stopped watching the entertainment and I started watching the, the, the boys and Heather. Um, and, and what happened was my perspective shifted as I watched their amazement at what was taking place. Um, I was no longer looking at this through a, you know, a fiscally responsible lens. Like, I wasn't like thinking, wow, this is really costing me an arm and a leg. You know, like, I wasn't registering all of the safety protocols that were being broken. Like, I was, I was now watching this from a different perspective, namely the amazement of my kids as to the spectacle that was before them. And so I, I got to watch really the power of a perspective shift and how it can change your entire circumstance, right? Um, Moses is, is in the middle of that. Um, he's, kind of at, he's kind of at a circus. He's, 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 at a, he's at a spectacle of sorts. And his entire perspective of who God is and how he was going to work in his own life had begun to shift. Um, and, and really what, what we're going to see today unfold is, is what many Christians for many generations have, have struggled with. So this is not unique to Moses, um, and, it, and it is generally across the board available to everybody, including us, is this, um, this struggle of, uh, of understanding who we are as people um, and who God is, really, very simply. Uh, in fact, the old um, Reformed theologian John Calvin, that may, my name might mean something to you, um, at the very beginning of one of his writings, called the Institutes of the Christian Religion, at the b- very beginning, the opening chapter, he uh, really fundamentally lays out those two things 
as the puzzle pieces to understanding everything else. Uh, He would put it like this. Uh, He would say that nearly all the wisdom that we possess, that is to say true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. And so at the, at the outset of this man's, you know, it's a, it's a legendary writing. Um, at the outset, he says, here's what wisdom contains of knowing God and knowing yourself. Uh, he would go on further in his writings to elaborate by saying, it's certain that a man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he has first looked upon God's face and then descends from contemplating him to scrutinize himself. Moses is doing just that. He is contemplating God's face and then in turn scrutinizing himself and understanding who he is in relation to this God. Um, Here's here's our problem, and I think the passage today is going to help us sift through this problem. Our problem is that our lives are plagued by a deep insecurity about our relationship with God. Uh, Rick alluded to it in our time of confession. Uh, You and I struggle to believe that God could actually love someone like us. And Moses was in the exact same dilemma. Um, Today's narrative asks and answers these two questions, uh, namely, who am I and who is God? So let's let's hang today's sermon on those two things. Let's, Let's look first at who am I Uh, kind of fundamentally using Moses' response to God, who am I, and then who is God. Um, The passage we picked up in where we left off last week is, uh, it it begins with these two imperatives. It doesn't really come out all the time in our English translations, but in verse 10, God is telling Moses two things, to come and to bring his people out. Uh, Those are commands. They're imperatives. It's a grammatical thing. Uh, He's insisting that that this man would be the one who would deliver God's people from their plight in Egypt. And what was Moses' response? (laughs) Me? (laughs) Like, who am I to do that? Uh, Let's let's briefly recap Moses' history and some of the things that would have been kind of running on the, the soundtrack of his mind as he's thinking about what God's calling him to do. Um, he was someone who was um, put out to sea to die. Uh, he was rescued and then adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. And so at the very outset of his life, uh, he uh, is in this unique predicament where he is a Hebrew uh, g- uh, genealogically, ethnically, he's an Israelite, but culturally he's living the life of an Egyptian. And so he grows up most of it, all of his adult life in an Egyptian-educated, wealthy, influential home while his people are enslaved. Um, and if that weren't enough, um, he's, he's caught red-handed in the act of murder. Uh, this, was, this was earlier stuff we've covered. He's then, he then flees, so, so he's not found out and caught, punished. He flees to Midian, and now he's living as this strange exiled man working for his now his new wife's family Um, so he's in this foreign strange land shepherding flocks out in the wilderness and God says I'm going to use you to do this to go back to Egypt and tell my people that 
they'll be delivered. Um, you, can, you can almost hear, uh, if it's not your own, I mean, certainly Moses, that critical inner voice, right? Um, the voice that says, you're entirely inadequate for this. Like, you are unequipped for this. You are, you, you are insufficient on your own to do this. You, you, you can almost hear that playing, the, the self-doubt, you know, the reluctancy, the reservation in his, in his life. Um, and, and maybe even more, another level of, of kind of struggle that Moses is going through and that we go through is, is that shame component and the guilt of his past. I mean, he's looking at what happened in Egypt. He's looking at his upbringing. He's looking around him. He's looking at the people that are under suffering and oppression. And he begins to feel this layer of guilt and shame and filth almost over his life. And he's entirely reluctant to do what God's calling him to do. Verse 11, who am I? Who am I that I should do your bidding, God? Who am I that I should deliver your people? And I, and I, think, I think one of the things uh, that really um, brings Moses and this story into our own lives in a new way is just, just identifying this simple truth that failures from your past don't define your future. Um, Moses needed to hear that. Um, that, that his past wasn't his, the defining factor for his future. And so things that, um, perhaps even things that happened apart from anything that he had any influence over, like his entire upbringing, you know, from his childhood up, like he had little to nothing to do with that. You know, those circumstances were the very providence of God that brought him there, but he was still layered with shame and guilt and conviction over those things. And so it began to define his childhood and his youth was defining who he would become as a man. Um, or, or even the things that perhaps he did proactively, you know, his interaction with the, the, the taskmaster over the, the Hebrew whom he killed. Um, like even the things that he had done that perhaps were not right, were not to be the defining factors of his future. Like God wasn't saying you're no longer qualified because of what you've done. In fact, God was perhaps using his sense of inadequacy and using his lack of worth to, to advance what God would do in his life. And so, so the, the who am I question, uh, the answer is I'm inadequate um, I'm flawed, I'm insufficient, um, and I'm helpless on my own. And that's exactly where God wanted Moses to be. It's exactly where he wants us to be as we hear what he's going to do and how he's going to respond to our lack of, um, really, acceptance of what God would have for us. So, so who am I kind of frames the beginning of Moses' response, but, but perhaps more importantly is the second part, and, and that is who is God? Um, have, you ever, have you ever received news um, in your life that that's simply on the surface seemed unbelievable? I mean, like just a, a radical piece of information or news or update of just like you just couldn't 
You just couldn't put your, put your mind around it. Um, I've shared, I think I've shared from up front before, um, my, my shady college history. Like I had a long, long route of college. Uh, it took me a long time to finish college. And uh, before, before Jesus found me and gave me purpose, um, my, my record uh, at school was just abysmal. I mean, it was terrible. Um, and I had these longings and aspirations to pursue ministry, and, and that required education. And so really that, that, that time frame between uh, becoming a Christian and finding purpose, I had to figure out how I was going to get an education with like a 0.8 GPA, like a 0.8. Like, like that was really my GPA. Um, and so I, you know, in a bold, you know, zealous new Christian fashion, began applying at all the best Christian schools. Um, and we were living in Phoenix at the time, and Grand Canyon University, which you all have heard of, of now, which was not heard of at the time, uh, had a great program, they had a great ministry program, and I thought so boldly I would just apply and see if the Lord would work. And sure enough, I had uh, received an acceptance letter, and attached to that acceptance letter, which was a shock in and of itself, was also also a small scholarship, nothing grand, but like a little gift with it. And I was, I was floored. I did not believe it. In fact, I called the school and told them, you've got the wrong guy. Um, like I, I got this piece of mail, says I'm accepted and funded. Like I'm pretty sure you got the wrong guy. Can you look that up? And the lady looked it up and sure enough, it was true. Um, and, and you, you got to imagine Moses um, is, is in a similar situation where he is the one chosen to deliver this news to God's people. Like God is saying, you are going to go to, to my people in Egypt and say, you will be delivered by my hand. And you got to, I mean, you got to sympathize with, with Moses here. He's thinking, how in the world will they believe me? There's no way that these Israelites are going to believe this strange man who's been in the wilderness for a number of years, who's come in and told them that I'm going to, that, that they'll be delivered. There's no way. And so God says, you're right, there is no way, so I'll give you two signs. And the two signs were these, or, or the, the two proofs of the evidence of belief were these. One was a sign. It was a future pointing sign that was to be received by faith. Look at verse 12. He says, here's, here's how I'll, you, you'll, they'll know that you're from me. Um, there will be a sign that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Now, think about that logistically. He's saying, here's how they'll know. You'll, you'll actually do it. And so, in other words, it, it was a future forward-thinking thing. So Moses is like, okay, that's probably not enough. Like, I'm going to tell them, and then I've got to show them. So the second thing that God says that will show that, you're, that this is true is my name. He, he gives them his name. Um, now, the name... I mean, in this culture, it, it represented the essence of an individual. I mean, even in our culture, names are important. Uh, they're, they're not quite as important as they were in this culture. But, I mean, for those of you parents, you know naming your children and what a circus that is. I mean, uh, for, for us, our, our boys, we have two boys that were adopted, um, and we had like four days to name our, 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 our boys. So, so our boys' names literally came over dinner. Like, it was like, hey, what, what are your top two, top two? And we just narrowed it down right there. Um, and, and with Isabel, you know, we had nine months with her, and that was just a fiasco. Like, the name, the, the naming game, it just became this whole thing. You know, you have this extravagant, extended list, and it turns out we picked the very very first name that we put on the list. So, um, but, but I mean, you know the importance of a name. Um, well, God has been named in the Bible before this. 
Um, Genesis is littered with different names for God. Um, I'm not, I'm not going to go through them, but, but he's had names before, but not names like this one. And so the names before in Genesis have largely been concrete, objective type of names. Almighty God, the mighty God, um, and, and, and things like that. And so God here reveals himself with a divine personal name, which we would likely, uh, we would pronounce it Yahweh. Um, now, you have to understand for ancient Israelites and even Orthodox Jews today, pronouncing the divine name given here was unacceptable. It was irreverent. God's name was esteemed with such high levels of of honor that it wouldn't even be pronounced. And so it was just four little letters, Y-H-W-H. Yeah, no vowels. There were no vowel pointing systems at that time. And so you've got this four-letter word that represented God, um, but it's more than a name. Um, You know, Moses asks him for the name for a couple of reasons. One, it was a way to identify God, but two, the text suggests that the Israelites already knew it. Um, so by going to them and saying he knew the name of God, it would have almost been like a password, right? Like if he came and he already knew this, well, then they would know that somehow he really did interact with this God. Uh, you'll, you'll see in your Bibles, when you read your Bibles in the Old Testament, when you see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Lord, all capitals, that is the divine name that's given here. And the divine name is used in Lord, all capitals, before this, this revelation. So even earlier in chapter 3, you'll see that it was given. So the assumption is the Israelites actually already knew God's name. But it was more than just a label. It was more than just an identity marker. It was actually loaded with theology. Um, it, it was actually something that revealed the very character and essence of who God was. And so a few of those things um, for us to understand is um, the difficulty of the interpretation of it, meaning it can mean I am what I am, I was what I was, I will be what I will be, or the shortened version, as God says later on, is just I am. So it begins to show us these types of things. It begins to show us that God is mysterious and cannot be fully known. He's incomprehensible. We know about him. He's revealed portions of himself to us, but we will never, never have an exhaustive knowledge of God. Even eternally, we will never fully know God. The Puritan Richard Baxter would say this. He would say, God is to us and to every creature incomprehensible. If you could fathom and measure him and know his greatness by a comprehensive knowledge, he would not be God. His name also reveals to us that he's eternal and he's unchangeable. He does not fickle in his character. He does not waver in his ways. Shows us that he's self-existent and self-sufficient. That God has no need of anything or anybody else. And so Moses here encounters this eternal, unchangeable, self-sufficient, almighty God in front of him, and it changes him. 
You and I are filled with fear, just like Moses was. Now, our experience of fear is different than his experience of fear, but fundamentally, the very thing that Moses feared most is the very same thing that you and I fear most, and that is rejection. Um, think, about, um, think about the insecurity. Think about the things that make you insecure. I mean, just, just thinking humanly and in our lives. I mean, by and large, the thing that makes us most insecure is rejection by people. Um, Example, job security. So fundamentally, our way of living and the way we know how to provide for our families is through our work. And that is oftentimes governed by other people's ability to influence that in our lives through our employment. And so fear controls us when we fear that somebody could take that from us. Um, same thing with financial stability or, or the safety of our children. You know, we, we begin to fear their safety in that wild world because people can have influence over us in ways that we cannot control. Um, here's God's response to, to your fear and to Moses' fear. And that is his answer in verse 12. He says, I'll be with you. Um, that's the only time, the only time in Exodus that God says that. He says it many times in the Old Testament, over a hundred times in the, in the entire Old Testament. But one time in the book of Exodus, he says, I will be with you, Moses. And it's probably the time he's most fearful. And so if we know all of those things about the eternal, unchangeable, self-sufficient God, like if we know that is who God is and he says, I will be with you, that one will be with this one. What does that do for us? What it does is it, it quiets our fear. It, it silences the very thing that grips us, fear. Um, and the fear is, is more than money and jobs and children. The, the fear under all fears, you know, the thing that underlies all of that is our fear that God will reject us. That was Moses' fear, that God would reject him. And so questions that I would propose to you today is, is are you filled with fear, uh, fear of rejection, namely? Um, are you filled with sorrow or doubt or unbelief? Um, if, if any of that is true, if, that, if anything resonates with you, then here's, here's what you need. Um, is you need the power of perspective that Moses is given here. You need to stop looking at the world like I was looking at that circus at the beginning. Fearfully. Uh, dreadfully. Logistically. And you need to shift your perspective to the, to the amazement that the children had. That's what Moses... We see this shift here. And... Um, and, and here's, here's the thing. Let me, let me just kind of close. I always, I always connect the dots. This is, this is more than about Moses. This is more than about Egypt. Um, there, there is only one way for you to know, without a doubt, unwaveringly know that God will never reject you. 
Did you know you can know that today? You can know that you will never be rejected by God. And, he, and here's why. Um, there's another I am who showed up. Um, and his name is Jesus. Uh, so Jesus, let me just fast forward to, to the New Testament. Jesus shows up and he's dealing with very religious people. And uh, you know what religious people like to do? They like to control and so he's dealing with these religious people who are trying to control uh, circumstances of how God operates. And Jesus, um, he, utterly, he utterly pulls the carpet out from these religious people by saying this in John, I'm in John chapter 8, you don't have to turn there. He, he concludes um, this entire interaction he has with these elite, religious, controlling type of people by saying this. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, religious, fear-based, controlling people, before Abraham was, I am. And so Jesus reveals himself as so much more than just a man. Uh, He reveals himself as so much more than just a religious leader to be respected and, you know, maybe to be admired. He reveals himself as the very God who was in the flames and the wilderness with Moses. He reveals himself as the eternal, all-sufficient, never-changing, all-powerful God of the Exodus. And here's, here's the icing on the cake. He is all of that. But then in Philippians chapter 2, it says that he has been exalted and bestowed on him, Jesus, the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If you're here today and any level of fear of rejection has gripped you in a way that perhaps either paralyzes you or just even maybe just numbs you. Like you're just walking through the motions of life. Maybe you're running through the motions of life. <laughs> but it, but if, if that is you today, then it is my deepest prayer that you would know the name that is above all names. The name of Jesus. The one who came to liberate his people from fear. Uh, we're going to close with a song today, and I just want to, I'm just going to read this one verse so it highlights it when we sing it. Uh, we're going to sing a song called for, for a Thousand Tongues to Sing, and it says, uh, it says in one of the verses we'll sing, the name of Jesus charms our fears. It bids our sorrows cease. It sings music in the sinner's ears, and it brings life and health and peace. Hear that name today. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we admit that too often we treat you like a tamed pet, like somebody who can be controlled and manipulated and approached only when we need you. Lord, forgive us for that. Lord, I pray that you would help all of us here today um, to look you in your face and to see that you are the one who charms our fears 
and who bids all of our sorrows to cease. That your name is the one who sings music in our ears and brings life and health and peace. Jesus, we need to know you as you are. And unless you reveal yourself, Lord, you will remain distant from us. You'll remain as just some friend to us. Lord, I pray that you would, that you would undo that that you would break down any false views that we have of you and that we would see you as you are and that we would worship you. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.